march into madness because we're talking about the triumphal entry and it seems to fit um, that it was definitely a maddening time. This week is called Passion Week and it's the most significant week in Christianity. The gospel accounts tell us about the events of Jesus' death and resurrection which give meaning to the rest of scripture. Actually, if we were to take eight chapters out of the Bible, the Bible would be emptied of its meaning. Eight chapters. That would be Matthew chapter 27 and 28, Mark 15 and 16, Luke 23 and 24, and John 19 and 20. The reason it would be emptied of its meaning is because that talks about the death and resurrection of Christ. It's one thing to talk about his incarnation, the fact that he came and all that he did, the miracles, the healings, and all of that would be lost in insignificance because if he didn't die and he wasn't raised from the dead, it wouldn't mean anything. And so all of scripture is inspired, but it's not all equally significant because some scripture is more significant than others. For instance... If we were to take the book of 1 Chronicles and talk about the genealogies and put those on the court wall in court, do you think anybody would vote to have those removed? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Nobody would have a problem with that in the courthouse. But they do have a problem when it says, you will have no other gods before me. They do have a problem if you get on national television and say, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. So scripture is equally inspired, but not equally significant. And so we bring forth the gospel, which is the most significant story, truth that we can offer the world. And it is a march into madness. If you open your Bibles to Matthew 21, this is one of the accounts that Matthew gives us of this triumphal entry as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem there is an entourage of people. There are palm branches being waved everywhere. And he's marching into madness. In Matthew 21, even if you look down in verse 10, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? This word stirred is actually kind of a mild word because the original word actually uh, includes words like earthquakes and apocalyptic upheavals. So that's more the nature of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's like, it's really shaken up. There's an upheaval, the crowd is ecstatic, there's an electricity in the air. It would be kind of like if we had the President of the United States show up in South Dakota at the State Fair, go down the main drag, and he's in a little golf cart, waving at everybody. That's just a tiny glimpse of what happens here. A tiny glimpse. Because many Galileans believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They had witnessed his miracles and healings and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So there are four things we want to look at through this text about Jesus the King. Four illustrations about Jesus the King and when we look at these illustrations, 
that Jesus did, what are the implications for us today? The first one is found in the opening verses here. They approach Jerusalem. They come to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, which they're not real exactly sure where that is, maybe around Bethany. Bethany's less than two miles east, just over the Mount of Olives. Jesus sends two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus the King fulfills scripture in his life. He fulfills scripture. We see this King who fulfills scripture, his divinity. He is not just a normal human being because it says he tells the disciples to go ahead of the village to the village and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt. How does he know that? He's divine. He's the son of God. He's omniscient. He knows not only that the animals are there, but that the owner will also release them so he can use them. So we learn something about Jesus the king. He is a divine king. He has omniscience. He knows things and he sees things and he doesn't have to be present. He can see it. And so this brings implications into our lives because sometimes we engage in activities that we think the Lord knows nothing about. I can be on my smartphone somewhere by myself, my parents aren't around, and I can scan something and look at something and I think, nobody knows. Um, you forgot something. God can see through bedroom doors, bedroom walls, schoolroom walls. <laughs> walls don't inhibit the vision of God at all. He can see it all. He sees into our heart. Even a, a, a cloud of blackness and darkness because there's so much evil when darkness comes and the sun sets and people do evil things when darkness comes. And yet the Bible reminds us that God even sees that. Look here in Psalm 139, 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, if I really believe that, that means it doesn't matter if my parents are around or an elder is around or a deacon is around or my wife is around or she's not around. Almighty God sees through everything. There's nothing I can do to cover myself. We try to cover our tracks. But yet it doesn't matter. And yet so many people think they're getting away with it. The only way they think they're getting away from is the Lord. Further and further away from the Lord, but he still sees you. Look in here, Hebrews 4.13. No creature, put your name in there. And Roy Burkett is not hidden from his sight. <laughs> Everything he does is naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. It's interesting how we can read this text and we can be okay that God sees an animal, but he sees me. 
And I don't know about you, but that makes me tremble. It makes me tremble that God sees into my heart. He sees what you don't see. And that's significant when we think about Jesus, the King, and what he sees. He fulfills scripture in his life, his divinity. He sees through things. But here's another encouraging thing. He not only sees dirty deeds, but he also sees hurts, struggles, your temptations. In fact, he sees ahead this week what you and I are going to face that we don't know about. We don't know what's going to happen when the phone rings or when something happens and something can come totally unexpected and catch us blindsided. Somebody somewhere will be blindsided this week with something. But God knows about our blind side. He sees it. And so it's just a good reminder of that, that God sees. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them. Here we see Jesus the King who fulfills Scripture, not only his divinity, but his divinity is wrapped up in his name. He is the Lord. It tells us down in verse 9 that we sang about even this morning. It says, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Later the children in verse 15 say, Hosanna to the son of David. He is the sovereign Lord. And so because he is the sovereign Lord, he is worthy of our praise. So here's a question. What expressions of praise will you give to the Lord? That his omniscience, that he is there, that he, he knows about my hurts, my struggles, my temptations, but he cares. He's worthy of our praise. There were two blind men in chapter 20 who were crying out when they, uh, as Jesus, it says in uh, chapter 20, verse 29, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside when they heard that Jesus was going by. They shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they answer, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. See, this king fulfills scripture. He is the son of God. And we need to be reminded of that. He says in Psalm 118, 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. When somebody comes in the name of anyone, it is to come with the idea that they are representing that person in order to promote his purposes and his agenda. Jesus came in the name of the Lord to promote God's agenda. We also see the fulfillment of prophecy Jesus the King fulfills scripture because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. He says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. If you write down Zechariah 9.9, you'll see that it was prophesied hundreds of years before that this king would ride on a donkey and not a horse. A horse was a means of war. Donkey was a means of peace. Jesus came bringing peace to the world. He fulfills scripture in his life. 
Our responsibility today for us is not to fulfill Scripture, but it's to respond to Scripture. Our response to God's Word is a matter of the heart. Jesus' mission was to fulfill His Father's will. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully. The goal of our lives is not to attend church. That's not our goal. It's not to read the Bible every day. That's not the goal of our life. It is not to stay away from alcohol or drugs. It is not just to listen to Christian music. You're like, man, what in the world? No, the goal of our lives is to be more like Christ. That's our goal. He fulfilled scripture. We become more like Christ by obeying scripture, by doing what scripture says. We see this also demonstrated in Jesus in his humility and his gentleness. It was incredible. This is the most stressful week of his life. And he comes riding a donkey, which is a symbol of peace. If a person wanted to demonstrate their power and authority, they would do so on a horse, not a donkey. Jesus is identifying more with the lowly Galileans. He's not wearing regal attire or a crown on his head. He comes in simplicity and humility. That should speak to us on how we are to respond to a lost world. If we are going to become more like Christ, we need to have a humble, gentle spirit. We speak the truth in love. We don't back down from sharing what we believe, but we do so with a spirit of love and humility and gentleness. Jesus came to reconcile sinners, that they would be at peace with him, to stop fighting against God and accept his offer of forgiveness. He says this in Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? That's why he came. So here's a question. How is my humility and gentleness when I am under pressure? Do I practice humility and gentleness when I am being opposed in my views? Because Jesus is going to be opposed in his views. Do I exercise humility and gentleness when I have a disagreement with someone? Or do I argue and blast and push my way and make enemies? Let me share something else that I see in this text that I think is significant. The conflict that Jesus experiences intensifies the closer he gets to the cross. Let me say that again. The conflict that Jesus experiences intensifies as he gets closer to the cross. The closer he gets to the cross, the more intense the battle becomes. So let me say this for us. The closer you and I move to the cross to the life that Christ wants us to live, the greater the battle will be. Humility and gentleness toward God and his word will move us closer to the cross. Jesus is worthy of our humility and gentleness 
Who can I exercise humility and gentleness toward this week so that Christ is seen in me? Notice it's not the point of being humble and gentle for humility and gentleness sake. It's for Jesus' sake. The reason I want to exercise those things in my life is that Jesus might be seen to a lost world. Because the truth of the matter is humility and gentleness is not part of our world. So when we act that way, it's countercultural. And it has an impact in people's lives. The second aspect and illustration we see in Jesus the King is Jesus the King finds corruption in their worship. Ouch. This is tough. He finds corruption in their worship. When we look down in verse 12... Jesus enters the temple area. He drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna, to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So Jesus finds corruption in their worship. He single-handedly throws these money changers out of the temple. And I think the reason he was able to do it single-handedly is because they knew their motives were wrong. Because what they were doing was in the confines of the temple precinct and they should have been outside the temple doing this kind of activity. Here's what he says back in Isaiah. That's not very clear there. Um, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And what were they doing? They were making a den of robbers. They were ripping people off. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 7. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Again, God sees everything. He sees their corrupt practices and what they're doing, and he's not happy with it. Here it is in the New Testament. He was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, referring back to this passage in Jeremiah. He says another verse, and I won't take the time to read it, but Zechariah 14, 21 He says there will no longer, at the very end of that sentence, or I mean verse, there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of the hosts on that day. He he was not happy with their trading at all. And he was condemning their practice of worship because what they were doing is they were exchanging money, they were selling animals, but they were selling animals above the price they should have been, exorbitant prices, ripping off the poor, They were more interested in profit than they were worship. And Jesus wasn't happy 
and he condemns him for it. He is about to totally turn the whole sacrificial system on its head. And that's why he's like, what you're doing is wrong. He was not happy with it. The temple was a place of worship and a place of prayer. It's going to be pretty hard for the Gentiles to go into the outer court and worship the Lord, he's saying, if there's all kind of noisy animals and people exchanging money, how are they going to engage in worship in the temple? How are the Jews going to go through the, to the inner court and hear all this noise and commotion going on and engage in quiet worship and prayer before the Lord? If you've got all this noise going on, they weren't going to be able to do it. And so Jesus is condemning them for their attitude of worship. They were more interested in profit than they were worship. It brings to mind a question, and I ask myself this question. If Jesus were to evaluate my worship, what would he find? Would it be thoughtless and heartless? Or is my mind engaged with the scripture and my heart is preoccupied, or is my heart preoccupied with what I did last night or what I'm going to do later today? Do I possess a judgmental attitude toward the lame and the blind? Notice here in this text, look in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. Do you know the, the blind and the lame were not really? They were restricted from going into the temple. And yet Jesus has them in the temple and he ministers to them because they had a judgmental attitude. Do I possess a judgmental attitude toward the lame and the blind? And what I mean by that is people who maybe have hurts, habits, hang-ups that I don't have. Do I reach out to them? Do I desire to see the blind and the lame come to Jesus? When was the last time I intentionally reached out to someone I know is struggling with a hurt, a habit, or an addiction, or a struggle to encourage them to pray with them? If I genuinely believe in the power of the gospel and the power of God to change lives, I will have a passion to reach out to those who are blind and lame and seek to bring them to Jesus. So here's my challenge for us. Will we make an intentional effort to visit with someone who is in our circle of influence to share Christ with them and encourage them in seeking after God? Maybe there's someone who, after church, you're in the lobby you might want to find a classroom and just pray with them. Instead of, you know, well, I gotta be at lunch. Just saying, something to think about. Or maybe this week you're talking with someone who you rub shoulders with, but you've never gone beyond the pleasantries and gotten down to where they live and challenge them about their eternal destiny. Jesus is worthy of our worship. How does my worship of Jesus impact my evangelism? 
Thirdly, the third illustration we see of Jesus the King is he exercises judgment on the fruitless fig tree. He condemns this fig tree. He comes up. He's coming down the road. He's coming back from Bethany. He sees that it's along the roadside, so it's public property. And he sees leaves on it. So when you see leaves, the tree should be in bloom. There should be figs. He's probably hungry. He hasn't had breakfast. And he condemns the fig tree. It's like, what does that mean? What is that all about? Um, The fig tree is a picture of the Israelites. It's a picture of the Israelites. They look good on the outside in their worship, their sacrifices, their money exchanging, and all those things they're doing. There's a lot of activity in the temple, but the activity is not pleasing to the Lord. We can get engaged in all kind of activity and look good on the outside, but inside we're rotten. That's what he's saying. That's what he's challenging the Israelites with. Their utter hypocrisy. They looked healthy on the outside. The tree did with the fig leaves, but internally the tree was sick. It had the image of spirituality, but no reality of spirituality. We can engage in self-promotion to make ourselves look good, but inside we're hollow. We have a shell of spirituality. Actually, if we go just a couple more chapters, he gives seven woes, and he calls them hypocrites. I mean, this is strong language in Scripture. But who is he talking to? He's actually talking to a lot of the religious people and the religious leaders. That's why I'm like, wow, I need to take inventory. That's probably not going to be all up there. Let me just read it to you. Matthew 23, if you want to flip over a couple pages, look in verse 25. We won't take the time to read them all, but a couple. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Then look down. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God sees through the veneer of our flesh to the very heart. And that's what he's interested in. He is concerned about the deadness of their worship that was just going through the motions. In reality, you know what concerns me? Let me be honest. I'm concerned that people think, because we're not having the Super Summer Jam, that evangelism is out of Bethesda. If that's your thinking, your thinking is wrong. Because here's what you're doing. You are tying evangelism to a program. I am hoping that there are people who are burdened and had connections with people in Super Summer Jam that you will go to their home and visit with them. Maybe have them to your home. See, we get so wrapped up sometimes with a program that we miss the heart. 
We miss the heart. And we've got to come back to the heart of the matter. Jesus is also challenged in the fourth one. Well, here's the question. What spiritual fruit am I producing in my life? Who am I impacting with the gospel? Jesus is worthy of my bearing fruit for his honor and glory. How am I bringing glory to Jesus in my fruit bearing? And then fourthly, Jesus the King is challenged in his authority. He's challenged. We go down after the fig tree incident, and we look in verse 23. Jesus enters the temple courts. That's where he ought to be welcomed. And while he's teaching, the chief priests, the elders, the leaders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked him. And who gave you this authority? They're like, who in the world do you think you are coming in here talking like this? And see, because what was required is many rabbis who taught in the temple would say, so-and-so rabbi used to say this. Such and such rabbi, and they would reference an earlier rabbi to give them credibility for what they were saying. Jesus wasn't referencing any other rabbi. Like, what in the world? Where are you getting this kind of authority? Who gave you this authority? Because we're the ones who pass on authority. We're the ones who say, yes, you can teach. No, you can't. We're the ones who give that. And where did you get yours? Because we didn't give it to you. Kind of interesting. We've never heard this teaching before. We've never seen these kind of miracles. And notice how they even asked it. By what authority, not just are you saying these things, but are you doing these things? Because you're throwing the money changers out. You're doing all this stuff. But where are you getting the authority to do that? Jesus has authority over the temple because Jesus is greater than the temple, Matthew 12, 6. The Jewish leaders were stunned. Jesus also has authority over disease because back earlier we saw in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. He had authority over disease. They're amazed. He has authority over all people. They're upset because the children were shouting and praising the Lord. In verse 15, when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Are you going to allow that to happen with children? It's like you've got to be kidding. Jesus has authority over all people. He also has authority over creation. Because he condemns the fig tree. And he's able to make it wither. So here's a question. How do I challenge the authority of Jesus in my life? When he says something in his word, do I submit to his authority? Or do I rebel against his authority? Do I question his authority and what he brings into my life? Or do I say, God, I want your will, your plan, your purpose to be fulfilled in my life. What is my response to the authority of Jesus? It's a question. How do you challenge the authority of Jesus in your life? When he says something in his word, do I submit to his authority or do I rebel against his authority. It's a question.
Jesus the King challenges us. What are we going to do with the challenge? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. It's Palm Sunday. We see Jesus the King coming on a donkey. They're praising him. But in the not too distant future, they're going to be holler, hollering crucify him. Let's kill him. What is your life saying? Are you singing the praises of God? Are you seeking to obey scripture in your life, recognizing his divinity, that he's worthy of our praise, that he sees everything in our life that maybe nobody else sees? Do we respond to his word with humility and gentleness? Does Jesus find corruption in my worship? Or do I really come eagerly, expectantly, praying? I'm praying for the service. I'm praying for the lost. I'm praying for believers to be built up in their faith, to be encouraged. And does that worship convert into evangelism? That evangelism is not a program. It's building relationships with people and being burdened for the lostness of people around me. What about the spiritual fruit in my life? Is there spiritual fruit that is being seen for the glory of God? How do I handle the authority of God? Maybe you're here today and you know your life is not right with the Lord. You know it. God knows it. And God is calling you and speaking to you just as he has faithfully done in the past. The question is, are you going to surrender to his will? And if not today, when? He has the rightful authority to be in control of our lives. And he wants to be. He wants to change us from the inside out. And that's why he says we need to be clean on the inside. Because the inside takes care of the outside. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, this is Passion Week. This is the reason. This is the crux of Christianity that Jesus came and he lived and he died a cruel death on a cross, not because of his sin, because of mine, because of yours. That's why he died, a humiliating death. He took your sin and my sin on his shoulders. He paid the penalty so that we could be forgiven. And the longer you resist, the harder your heart will become. Will you surrender your life to the Lord and give him the reins of your heart? 
you can ask him into your heart, right in your seat. God, come into my life. I'm a sinner. Make me a new person in Jesus. You've got a habit. You've got an addiction. You've got something you can't break. God healed the lame man and the blind man. He can do things you cannot do. He can give you deliverance over addiction. He can bring healing to hurt. He can restore broken relationships. Would you give him your life? If you have a prayer need, I'll be shaking hands at the back. Please see myself or somebody else that you have a relationship with that you want to pray with and say, would you please pray with me about this struggle in my life? Don't struggle alone. Our walk with God is a community project. It's a community project. We do it in community. If I can help you, encourage you in any way, please see me. Like I said, someone else you can pray with. out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, E as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.